Thank you, Peyton. And uh, thank you for that doxology. It was not my idea, but I will still take credit for it. That's awesome. Thank you. Hey, my name's Eric, and I'm delighted to get to be here with you on this Daylight Savings uh, Sunday morning and worship with you. We're going to continue to worship together. As Mike's already said, as this team of musicians and, and singers has led us to the throne of God's grace, I want to continue in that posture. And so I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to walk through a very lively text this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we do thank you this morning for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And so we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is relevant to every aspect of our lives. And in those places where we don't really understand or believe that, would you change our minds? Would you give us clarity? Would you communicate to us through your spirit, through your word as your people? And Father, I do pray in advance for anyone who is here this morning or listening remotely, that they don't know you, that you would move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that they would step out of curse and into blessing. And pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The wages of sin is death. Now, that's probably not news to any of us, but it bears repeating because it's true. <laughs> There's an old adage that says, war is hell. Now, clearly, I've never fought in any sort of war or anything even close to that, but we know enough about war to understand that it is absolutely horrific. It is devastating. It's an absolute nightmare. And frequently in the Bible, war is used by a sovereign God as an instrument of his justice and his judgment. It, it's, it's unpalatable for us in the 21st century to think in those terms, but I remind you, the wages of sin is death. And when an entire population or a people group or a culture or a society or a community resists in rebellion the holiness, the law of God for a certain amount of time, then God has to act because he is a God of justice and judgment and righteousness. And righteousness must roll forth like a river. In entire populations, when there is debauchery and depravity and wickedness and violence, there are usually at least a handful of people who are crying out for some sort of mercy and rescue. And it's harsh, but sometimes God uses war as an instrument of his justice. In 722 BC, we have the northern tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and they are essentially exterminated and annihilated by the invading Assyrian army, this super violent, depraved, debauched, wicked people. God uses them, raises them up to come and be an instrument of judgment on his own people. And it's harsh because sin is a really big deal. About 150 years later, the Babylonians begin their assault of the southern kingdoms of Judah. God raises up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to be an instrument of judgment on his own people because of their steadfast refusal to repent of their own righteousness, which there is none. The Bible tells us that the, the empire of the Persians is raised up and energized by God to be an instrument of judgment and justice upon the Babylonians. And then that the Greek empire is raised up to be an instrument of judgment and righteousness upon the Greeks. And then finally, the Romans are raised up to be an instrument of judgment and justice upon the Greeks. And so it goes all through history. 
So what are we to take away from that? Here we sit in the 21st century in relative peace, give or take. What are we to do about that? Well, I want to be very quick to point out, God has not called us to holy war in the same way. So pump the brake, relax. That's not what this sermon is about. What the Bible is preparing us for and pointing us to is that war is hell and the judgment and the righteousness of God will be poured out on sin, but in a marvelously unexpected way. Way back in the book of Joshua, chapter one, verse five, God tells Joshua, I will never leave nor forsake you. And now we live in the age of grace, the time of the church, where the writer of Hebrews picks up on that theme. And in Hebrews 13, 15, quotes from Joshua and says, hey, to the church, never will I leave you nor forsake you. And that actually sets us up for our big idea this morning. And it goes like this, God is with us. Despite judgment on sin and wickedness, rebellion, transgression, and iniquity, God is with us. And that's very good news because sin is a very big deal. Now, we've been studying through the book of Joshua. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Joshua and chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8, where we're going to see that God is with us. Joshua chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua. Now, I hate to start and stop this abruptly, but we kind of have to because this is a massive, massive introduction to our text. The Lord said to Joshua, that's a shock. That's a jolt. It sort of comes out of nowhere. We almost don't expect it if we've really been paying attention. Because in the previous chapter, we see that the nation of Israel acts somewhat presumptuously. They've crossed the Jordan River at God's direction and leadership. They've taken the city of Jericho at God's sovereign power. And then there's sin in the camp. And they try to go up and take the city of Ai, or we would say Ai, because it's the next logical step geographically. And they are beaten back and they're thrown back and they're defeated. It's the only time in Israel's history of the conquest that they're defeated in battle. Sin is discovered. One guy, one guy went outside the word of God and the people suffered for it. 36 of their warriors are killed, but the sin is confessed and accurately so. Justice is meted out. And then God says, let's go. Let me read this again. And the Lord said to Joshua, I can't tell you how much I love that. Because there's a part of me knowing a little bit of what Joshua must have been experiencing as a leader to think, this is on me. I've done this. I messed this up somehow. I remember when Moses would go through situations like this and Moses would just deal with it. There would be some uh, rebellion in the camp or there'd be some insurrection. Moses would just deal with it. There would be harsh punishment and then they'd keep going. But now it's happened to me. And Joshua sees this defeat and what does he do? He prostrates before the presence of God at the ark and he prays and he prays and he prays and he's gotta be thinking, have I screwed this up somehow? Have I, have I missed God? Have I forgotten something? Have I missed something that now I'm outside of God's path and his provision and his presence? Have you ever been there? I mean, I sure have. I tell you, sometimes we functionally think of God this way. We sometimes think of God as this great, grand, cosmic carny, <laughs> where, where we approach him at his booth, and he's got these three shells, and he says, here's the P to life. Now, 
follow, 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 come on. And we get distracted and we get discouraged and we get depraved and, and, and he's doing this. And then we, he says, okay, well, where, where's the path of your life? And you go, uh, 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 that one? And he goes, ha, 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 good luck with the rest of your life you missed. Is that how God works? No, praise God. No, praise God. No. But we tend to think of him that way. Whatever we end up doing, God is with us. Now, that's the gospel, and we forget it. We have a tendency to think that we take ourselves out of God's presence. That is a lie from your enemy. And the Lord said to Joshua, he hasn't abandoned him. Oh, listen, God would have been completely just to have departed. He would have been right to do so, but he doesn't because he's good, and he so loves the world. And the Lord says to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. I got to tell you, I absolutely love this. This would have been a warm blanket to Joshua's soul. This would have been like a warm sunrise coming up out of the cold, dark night of Joshua's soul. He had been the one to have to give the command for the execution of Achan and his family. Can you, can you even imagine? It was just, doesn't mean it was pleasant. It was horrifying. And God tells him, do not fear and do not be dismayed. It must have echoed in his heart. See, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 21, 40 years earlier when Joshua was a younger man, he's in his mid-40s, he and his buddy Caleb with 10 other spies were charged to go into the land and to scout it all out. And Moses tells Joshua, and I quote, do not fear and do not be dismayed. And they weren't. They went in, they scouted the land, and they came back and they said, we can take them, Moses. Let us at them. Come on. 40 years later, Moses is about to hang up his mantle of ministry and leadership, and he hands the proverbial baton to Joshua. You know what he tells him in Deuteronomy chapter 31? He says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. And then just as they are about to cross over the Jordan River, God himself comes to Joshua and says, not once, not twice, but thrice. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. What a gift, what a grace, what a compassion and a kindness for God to speak to Joshua this way. Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But, 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 but God, have you forgotten? There was sin in the camp. We rebelled against you. We defied your word. We presumed to act like you weren't really there, that you don't really care. And God says, no, let's go. There was sin. It's been dealt with as far as the east is from the west. If you don't own a globe, buy one. <laughs> he does not say as far as the north is from the south, for that's finite. He says as far as the east is from the west. Now, some of you need to hear that because you're still simmering in your own sin grease from something that you did, said, or thought days ago, weeks ago, months ago, years ago, and you've confessed it, and it was thrown at the cross of Christ. There it was applied and finished, but your enemy continues to remind you. God says, let's go. For some of you, however, maybe there's sin that you've never agreed with God about, and it still needs to die at the cross of Christ. Do so, and then hear God say, let's go. Verse one, take all the fighting men with you. <laughs> Not like the last time they tried to take Ai, 
where they just sent about three, 4,000 people. No, 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 no. That was just a light expeditionary force. Now you're gonna take the entire army. How many is that? We think maybe 70, 75,000 troops. Woof, that's a ruckus. Take all of the army with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Do you notice the verb tenses? Go do it, it's done. There's the tension, the sovereignty of God in his mind, it is future history. It is just as finished to God then as it is to us now. And that in no way negates Joshua's responsibility. It's our same charge as believers. God has given the victory. Now go experience Monday. God has given the victory. Now go deal with Thursday evening. God has given the victory. Now go deal with Saturday night. It's the both and. It never, ever obliterates one tension or the other. God says, go and do it. I've already given it to you. But God's too clever to do the same thing the same way twice. It's really interesting. Now, this is God, the sovereign creator of the cosmos, who is very directly involved in the precise plans of this tiny little population in the land of Canaan. I mean, sometimes I don't think of God that way. Oh, he's big and he's, he's, he's huge and he's shiny and he's smart and he's glorious. No, he also cares about the tiny little precise problems of individual people. And that's very good news. He says at the end of verse one, and his people and his city and his land, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Eh, really? Did Joshua really fit the battle of Jericho and the walls coming tumbling down? Not exactly. God did a thing, and Joshua and the people were responsible to obey. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Oh, wow. Do you remember what happens the first time they try to attack Ai? There was sin in the camp. One dude tried to take the spoil and the plunder and the livestock for himself, and God said, no, not yet. Had that guy, Achan, let's say his name, had that guy, Achan, just waited on the Lord two or three days, he would have had all that he wanted and more, all that he needed and more. About a year ago, we studied through the book of Genesis. We talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that Jacob's hallmark motif was to always try and hustle God. God said, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you land, offspring, and blessing. And Jacob said, no, I'll take it on my own terms. And he keeps trying to pry out of God's hand the thing that God's already promised to give him. You ever been there? Of course you have. So have I, and frequently so. And Jacob's descendant Achan says, no, God, I think you're holding on on me. I'm not so sure you're going to come through when I need or when I want. I will grant myself the desires of my heart because in my heart, in my deepest depravity, I want to be God. I want to call the shots. I want to be the captain of my soul. If Achan had just waited, he would have had the plunder from Ai under God's direction. God says, I want you to take the livestock and the plunder for yourselves. And then God says, lay an ambush against the city behind it. To which Joshua was, yeah, but what about the whole marching around thing? That was pretty cool. Nope. And can I just tell you, that's not how our lives generally work. God will very frequently radically save us, declare us righteous, and then the rest of our Christian life is going uphill against Ai. And that's okay. God is with us. He says this time, using some creativity, using some cunning, using some cleverness and some creativity, lay an ambush. But this is good storytelling. We don't get all the details. That's gonna come as the story unfolds. 
Verse 3, so Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. Now, there's been some confusion, a lot of discussion and debate on how many soldiers there actually are, how many different detachments of soldiers there are, and where they're actually sent. So I just kind of want you to hear more than likely, the best, most plain reading of the text is that there are actually three different detachments of soldiers, and it's overkill. God does not seem to mind. He's making a point. I want all of Israel involved as the sword of my judgment on these Canaanites is meted out. So we've got a quick map we'll show you just to kind of give you an idea what's happened so far. I want you to have this in your minds. They've crossed the Jordan River right near Jericho. They've put a monument of stones at a place called Gilgal. It's a circle of stones. They've gone about 15 miles to Ai. They were defeated. They go back. They retreat. Now Joshua's going to march the entire army about 15 miles to the west. He's going to send 30,000 troops by night. Shh, they're walking like this at night. 30,000 of them. And they go around way to the south. You see the bottommost line. They go way down to the south and they position themselves to the west of Ai which we know to this day, a lot of craggy cliffs and rocks and caves and hills, actually pretty easy to hide 30,000 people, especially by night. They go around to the south undetected and they plant themselves in ambush, 30,000 people between Ai and Bethel. Meanwhile, David's gonna, I'm sorry, Joshua's gonna hike the rest of the army around to the north and there's gonna be a ravine to the north of Ai. Joshua's gonna position the rest of the army to the north. Now that's not going to go undetected. And that's a reason for that. Verse three, so he sent 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. Just wait for my signal. It's about to go down. And I, Joshua says, and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. We're going to play and pray upon their overconfidence, arrogance, and hubris. They beat us before. We're going to use that against them this time. Verse eight, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. We're not too proud to show them our retreat, Joshua says, because it's for God's purpose. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. God's done it. Go get it. I want you to hear that. And I want you to repeat that to yourself. God's done it. Go get it. As soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. They are to go in and immediately set the place on fire. It's not just for destruction, it's also a part of the battle plan. The city on fire is going to be a signal to the rest of the main army. Verse nine, so Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people, scouting out the proper place for where this is all gonna go down. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them at Ai. The writer really wants you to know what's going on in the land. The main forest is off to the north. There is a valley between the city of Ai, which is elevated, and where they're stationed. Joshua has scattered out the perfect battlefield. It's down in the valley. But what the writer doesn't tell us, because he expects for us to know, is down in that valley, it's completely thicketed with olive trees. 
Now, if you're above and you look down on an olive grove, all you see is canopy, these big, gnarly, massive trunks of olive trees, and you can't actually see. And Joshua has picked out a little battle plain in front of those trees between the trees and Ai, where he's going to go and show himself to the people of Ai. Brilliant tactic and a wonderful strategy. Verse 12, he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. The idea, the thought is there was 30,000 that are already in ambush. There's another 5,000 that go around and they're gonna camp out just in case some reinforcements come out of Bethel to cut those guys off as well. Verse 13, so they stationed the forces, this is the main army, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city, but Joshua spent the night in the valley. So now second morning, as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place. Ah, there's an appointed place. Joshua has drawn them perfectly into the field, to the theater of war. Toward the Arabah, that's down to the east and the south, to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. God knew. Joshua knew. The pagans did not know. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So the thought is, the guys from Bethel, they just go right on through, right through the city of Ai, and they join up with Ai, and they rush down the slopes to attack Israel as well. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, how? Audible voice? I don't know. Stirring of his spirit? I don't know. But it was clear enough that Joshua knew exactly what to do. The Lord spoke to Joshua. Stretch out the javelin or the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Was this a magic move that Joshua stuck out his spear and it created some atmospheric disturbance that wiped it? No, no. But it is a symbol to the people. It's also a military strategy, a military signal. He points this spear, probably a long curved sword, at the city of Ai to say, this is God's judgment against you for your wickedness. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. It's supposed to give us a flicker, a faint reminder of Exodus 17, when Moses leads the children of Israel in battle against the Amalekites, the giants. And as long as he holds up his staff, they win, but his arms get tired. And he holds up his staff again and they win. And finally someone goes, hey, uh, we should keep his arms up. And they come and they help him hold his arms up. This time Joshua just holds his sword out and they're gonna have victory. Verse 19, the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. As soon as they had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. Joshua's spear apparently glints in the sun. There's a watcher. He sees what's happening, that the men of Ai have emptied out. They go in, they completely take the city, they capture it, and they set it on fire. Verse 20, so when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. Interesting little detail. It went up to heaven. Why? Because this is the judgment of God against a pagan people who were committing horrible acts of indecency, Leviticus 18 tells us, of child sacrifice, of brutality against one another. The guys of Ai running down suddenly go, hey, that's my couch on fire. And now they know they're in trouble. And they had no power to flee this way or that for the people who fled in the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. Now the main army of Israel, perhaps as many as 40,000 troops. Now they stop, they put their heel on the ground 
AI has given up its high ground. Now they're on a plain below the ravine and Israel is still mustered in the olive trees. It's a very J.R.R. Tolkien kind of scene. And now Israel's gonna come out of, the, out of the olive trees in force. Verse 21, when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. Israel has executed a perfect kill box, a pincer move where you've got 40,000 or so troops down here and as many as 35,000 now having the high ground rushing down and the men of Ai are completely caught and crushed. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai, they took, oh, so there's one survivor for a moment. The king of Ai, they took alive and they brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them and all them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. The wages of sin is death and war is hell as the judgment of God is poured out. They had four centuries to repent and the law of God was written on their hearts. I know it's hard to hear, but the wages of sin is death. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. No mention of the children, so it's thought that perhaps they were just taken and made a part of the community of Israel. We don't know. But 12,000 are killed, means about half of them would have been the soldiers, the men. So 6,000 soldiers versus about 70,000, give or take, of Israeli soldiers. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. When God says, I want it gone, I want it gone. And Joshua obeys. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. But don't you think the soldiers still thought twice before they reached out and took the stuff? I bet they did. It's a good reminder. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. That's not how he killed him. We know that the typical method Joshua uses is to put the king to death by the sword and then to display his body as a reminder of God's judgment on display at the city gate or on a tree. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took the body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Because the book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, and they must be removed by sunset. And so Joshua follows the book of the law, God's word. They take him down, they throw him at the gate of the city, and they put over a huge pile of stones. For those of you keeping score... That's now the third pile of stones we've encountered in the book of Joshua. When they crossed the Jordan River, they put up a big memorial to say, look what God did. He entered into the breach of our pollution and brought us through into the land of promise. When Achan sinned and con completely infected the people, they executed him at God's direction and they put over him a huge pile of stones to say, look what God did because look what man is capable of in sin. And now they say, this is what God has done. Through us as judgment, one more memorial, same exact word, over the king of Ai to commemorate the judgment of God falling down. And then we get verse 30, really the entire point of this passage of this chapter. At that time, so the narrator wants us to know that like right away, no time passes. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel on Mount Ebal. Let me put that map up for one more moment just to show you. Because Joshua's going to do something that's militarily completely foolish. 
His plan had been, because God's strategy had been to go into the land to divide and conquer. He was gonna cut the land of Canaan in half, conquer the north, conquer the south. He's already taken Jericho. He went 15 miles west. He's conquered Ai. He's got the land divided. Now it's time to strike while the iron is hot. What does Joshua do? He hikes all of Israel, every man, woman, child, and alien, not extraterrestrial, the people from other nations that had joined in with Israel. He hikes the entire nation 30 miles north to Mount Ebal. It's a climb of about 3,200 feet in elevation. This ain't easy, folks. It's rugged terrain. It's 30 miles. You're climbing 3,200 feet. Why does Joshua do this? We're told that he builds yet another pile of stones, an altar on Mount Ebal. Let's keep reading and find out why Joshua does this. Verse 31. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, and then he quotes from the book of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. One might say that the heart of the Old Testament is the book of Deuteronomy. The heart of the book of Deuteronomy is chapters 27 through 30. And in Deuteronomy chapter 27, Moses commands the people of Israel, when you cross into the land of Canaan, go to Mount Ebal and build an altar there. How did Moses know? Moses had never been to the land of Canaan before. Oh, Moses knew. Because Moses had written the book of the law in his own hand for 40 years. Moses directs them, build an altar, not cut with any human tools whatsoever, natural. Why? This is the death knell, the dagger in the heart of humanism. There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be atonement, innocent in the place of the guilty. And humanity brings nothing to the table. God does it all. The creator of those stones is the only one glorified in the process. Moses is very particular and precise. So is Joshua in following it to the letter. And there in the presence of Israel, verse 32 of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So they build an altar on Mount Ebal. They have sacrifices. And then Joshua pauses in the midst of this incredible conquest. They've taken Jericho. Now they've taken Ai. They take a 30-mile field trip up 3,200 feet in elevation, and Joshua plops them all down and makes them all sit there and wait. As he takes these large flat stones, plasters over them with lime, and he writes out the law of Moses. Some think maybe just the Ten Commandments, probably not. It's probably Deuteronomy 5 through 26, all of it. And it took a long, long time as the people sit there and they quietly submit and wait for the word of God to be given. Now that might seem like excess. We know that in antiquity, what conquering kings would do is they would take stones like this and they would plaster over them and they would write of their own conquests. There's a, there's a conquering stone in Persia that is literally three times longer than the entire book of Deuteronomy. So this is a common practice, but Joshua doesn't do that. He doesn't write about, well, there we were in our foxholes near Jericho, and then we blew the... No, 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 no. God is the holy and the righteous one, and he writes the law of God on these tablets, and the people wait for it to happen. Now we're going to get more explanation. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, 
and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. Oh, a writer, a reader of the Old Testament will understand what's going on here. Joshua has hiked these people 30 miles north to a valley between Mount Gerizim in the south and Mount Ebal in the north. And in between these two mountains is the city of Shechem, modern day Nablus. Not real safe for you to go these days. But he goes to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. In the book of Deuteronomy, what we're told is that six of the tribes of Israel were to gather on Mount Ebal. Six of the tribes of Israel were to gather on Mount Gerizim. The six tribes that gather on Mount Gerizim were the sons of Leah and Rachel. The, the six tribes that gather on the north of Mount Ebal were the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, Jacob's handmaidens, and Reuben, because he also did a gross thing with his, you know, father's concubine, weird day. Anyway, those six tribes are divided. On Mount Ebal, those six tribes would be gathered. And the priests, in this case, Joshua and the priests, would read out the 12 curses from Deuteronomy. And after each of the 12 curses were read, the six tribes, as one voice, maybe as many as a million people or more, would say, amen, 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 as each one of those curses would be read. And then on the southern side, Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing, the priest, in this case, Joshua, would read out the seven blessings of Deuteronomy 27 to 30. Seven blessings, and these six people would say, amen. And by the way, you can stand on this mountain and have a conversation with somebody on that mountain. It's a perfect amphitheater. The, the blessings would be read, and these people would say, amen, seven times. What's going on? Why is this happening? This is Israel's bar mitzvah. They are becoming a child of the law. They are ratifying, renewing the covenant with God. And why here? Why here? Why 30 miles up here? Because this is Shechem. It's the geographic center of Israel to this day. The exact center point, what the book of Ezekiel will call the belly button of the cosmos. It is the center of Israel. It is the exact spot way back in Genesis 12 where God comes to Abram and says, Abram, I will make you a father of many nations and I will give you land and I will give you seed and I will give you blessing from that very spot in Shechem. And Abram builds an altar to the Lord. His grandson, Jacob, goes off on exile because he's a swindler and a hustler and he finally returns to the land. And where does he go? He goes to Shechem. And he builds an altar to the Lord to say, your ways are better than my ways. I yield, I surrender. You are God alone. At Shechem, 500 years later, the children of Israel go right back to Shechem because the promises of God do not fail. And Joshua makes good on the promise made to Abraham 500 years later. And they build an altar and they have sacrifice to say, something innocent must die for the sake of the guilty. They do the altar on Mount Ebal, not on Mount Gerizim. Why? It's just like God at Mount Sinai when he gives the law to Moses. He says, thou shalt not transgress my law. But when you do, here's the Levitical system of sacrifice where atonement can be made and my wrath can be satisfied. Do not break my law. And when you do, I am providing a way of escape. Now that's the gospel. They build the altar on Mount Ebal, on the mountain of curse to say something's going to have to die. For when these curses are poured out on my people, I will provide redemption myself, do you see? Well, the chapter concludes, verse 34, and afterward he read all the words of the law 
the blessing and the curse according to all that was written in the book of the law. Israel, God's firstborn son, Exodus 4.22, is now responsible to the law, just like you see a male child at bar mitzvah or a female child at bat mitzvah. They are now responsible to God's law. Verse 35. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. They were to be reminded, to remind one another that God is with us. So it's some 3,400 years later. What do we take away from this? How do we apply a passage like this to our lives in the age of the church? Since God is with us, let me give you three quick implications or applications or takeaways or principles that we are to apply to our lives. Number one goes like this. Obedience is its own reward. Now, I know that's a little bit cryptic. Obedience is its own reward, so let me say it slightly differently. Life with God is the only life that actually works, both now and eternally. I know, I know. It's, in our day and age, it's not popular to make a blanket statement and then say that it's true for 8 billion people. I don't care. I didn't make it up. It's God's inspired and inerrant and infallible word. Life with God is the only God that actually works. Obedience is its own reward. The life of faith is the only life that actually works. Every culture, every people group in human history has tried to work out a life both individually and communally where they can enjoy prosperity and minimize calamity. Mark it down. Thousands and thousands of years of human history, that's all anybody's trying to do. Every other form of religion is capitalizing on this. You do a bunch of stuff and you obligate the deities to bless you. You don't do it right, they curse you. And that's how you make sense of your life. So much so that the Canaanites in worship of Chemosh and Molech were doing horrible things to their firstborn children, horrible acts of violence against one another, trying to make life work, and it never does. All those false deities always demand your very life. The Canaanites had four centuries to, to repent of all of that wickedness, Genesis 15 says, all of which, by the way, all of that wickedness was engineered to simply try to make life work, to maximize pleasure, to minimize pain, and it never, ever worked. But God so loves the world that he won't allow that to persist forever because he knows that it's really bad for entire populations. Righteousness must roll forth. And since God is with us, we can trust that the life he gives us really is the path to joy and love, even in the midst of circumstances that we would prefer not to experience. In Scripture, obedience always means faith and belief. We hear obedience in the 21st century. We're churchy, and so we think obedience means doing the right things and not doing the bad things. That's not obedience. Obedience always comes out of faith. It's what we believe. It's what we are persuaded how we are persuaded always drives our practice. What we believe always drives our behavior. Our doctrine always drives our doing, okay? That's obedience, not just doing some stuff. It is faith, it is belief. It is allowing yourself to be persuaded. It's not a very popular sentiment or attitude, but texts like these today give us the reminder and the, white, and the opportunity to wave the white flag of surrender to the only king who is actually capable and trustworthy to organize our lives. We are not individually, we are not corporately, only our God. Second point of implication, very quick on this one, repeat truth, refute lies. 
This is good therapy. Repeat truth and refute lies. Joshua was told by Moses over and over again and by God over and over again, be strong and courageous. Don't fear, don't be dismayed just because the circumstances of your situation have changed and they're going to change for you and for me. Why do we have to be reminded? Because we have to be reminded because we forget. And so we have the opportunity, the privilege and the prerogative to keep preaching the same sermon of truth to your soul. Keep refusing to listen to or believe untrue things no matter how subtle they are. And can I just tell you, our world is a relentless barrage of untrue things. Even if it's about 50-50, you and I in the world, in social media, in friend relationships, sometimes even in church, are the recipients of a barrage of untrue things. Refute untrue things. We say it all the times on staff here at Bethel, downtown. Those are untrue things. We're not gonna listen to that. We're not gonna qualify that. We're not gonna engage in those untrue things. Here's what's true. And we repeat true things and we refute untrue things. Here's what's true. God is with you. God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, he's for you, so take courage. Third point, right from this passage, believe it or not, by extension, it goes like this. Repent of your righteousness. Repent of your righteousness. It's incredible to me that some 1,400 years after Joshua, in Joshua chapter eight, the ultimate Joshua what is Joshua? God is our salvation. The ultimate Joshua, Jesus Christ, comes to those same two mountains, Mount Gerizim in the south, Mount Ebal in the north. We find Jesus there in John chapter four as he encounters a woman at the well. And she's a Samaritan. Where is Samaria? It's Shechem. It's the area between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And Jesus, for some reason, goes directly there. You remember the story. It's the middle of the day. He asks her for a drink. Now, the Samaritans of Jesus' day and Westerners in the 21st century actually have a whole lot in common, believe it or not. The thought of being sinful or unrighteous was not really popular to the Samaritans. She tells Jesus that the Samaritans worship on that mountain, she says, Mount Gerizim, but that the Jews say they should worship in that place on Jerusalem. What is her point? Well, she's trying to explain to Jesus how to worship. Always a good idea, by the way. The point is that the Samaritans didn't like the idea of their sin or the need for a substitute to offer in a sacrifice in their place. Even though she is the product of several failed marriages and a current illicit relationship, so the Samaritans built their altar of worship on Mount Gerizim, the place of blessing. We don't want to hear about all the sin. We just want the blessing. Can you imagine a society or a culture that's like that? And instead, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You have to repent of your righteousness. And he gently and lovingly exposes all of her sin. Oh, you've been married five times. And the dude you're living with now is not even your husband, is he? And he sees right through her and she knows he directs her away from her supposed righteousness and he exposes her sin. And yet, he simultaneously points to himself as the sacrifice and the substitute that will suffer for her sin. But first, she has to believe that. And so do we. We have to see the wreckage of our own sin and repent of any notion that we have anything of ourselves deserving God's favor. We don't. The altar is uncut stones. God alone does it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. 
We who believe and are found in Christ and God finds complete and total favor in his son, Jesus Christ. And so God cannot love us any more or any less than he already does. And so I invite you to repent of your own righteousness, to wave that white flag of surrender. See, God is with us. In a shocking development in the narrative of this scripture, we're going to see the gospel. We learned in Joshua chapter five of a person that Joshua encounters, the commander of the armies of the Lord of hosts. And Joshua sees him and goes, oh dude, you're pretty bright and strong and shiny and probably somewhat awesome. Whose side are you on? And we find out that it's actually the second member of the Godhead Trinity, a pre-incarnate Christ. And he says, oh, I'm not on anyone's side. And by the way, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And Joshua face plants and says, I'm not on anybody's side. I am the side. And Joshua worships. Joshua's already encountered that person. What we're going to find out that this king and commander of the armies of the hosts of heaven, well, he himself will willingly become the king of Ai. This commander of the hosts of heaven will willingly take on the sin of all those depraved, debauched, wicked, rebellious, transgressing, iniquitous, sinful Canaanites and Philistines and Jews and Gentiles and East Texans of the 21st century. The book of Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming that curse hanged on a tree. You see, we expect Jesus, the commander of the hosts of the armies of God to come through and eradicate and exterminate all of his enemies. But instead he says, no, 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 no. I so love the world. I will become all of your curse for you. I will become that which is shamed and made public spectacle of for your sake. So now very similar to the children of Israel between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, we also stand between two mountains. We here in the church age. Now we just had the opportunity a week and a half ago or so to literally geographically and physically experience this. We as the church in this time and in this place, we stand in what we call the Kidron Valley. We stand between two mountains. To our west, we have Mount Calvary where Jesus became curse so that we could have all the blessing of God. It's not enough to merely have your sin removed. You must also receive the full righteousness of the Son of God. To our east, we have the Mount of Olives, where Christ will come again. And he will pour out curse and judgment on all those who are not found in him. And so we, the church, stand between two mountains, bar mitzvah, you might say, responsible to the law, the word of God, which is the gospel. Come. The spirit and the bride say, come, just come, just come, just come. It's the only life that works. Are you not persuaded? Will you not believe? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We confess that war is hell and war is coming. But we thank you that you in your son Christ at Calvary, you took the hit of hell for us who believe, and so we never will. And Father, for those, anyone here who does not know you, who is not found in your son Jesus Christ, would you persuade them that they would believe and have the obedience of faith to step out of curse into blessing, out of death into life, 
out of darkness into light. Would you so move, God, irresistibly by your spirit? And if you are a believer in Christ, I remind you of your posture and your place between these two mountains. To pray for those who are not. To join with the spirit and say, come. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your spirit, your church. We pray all these things together, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.